Welcome to Working on Wellbeing, where we share stories of purpose-driven people doing good in the world. We'll meet change agents, entrepreneurs, students, teachers, and big thinkers to learn about their wow moment and how it got them to where they are today. This show is brought to you by Salary Finance, and I'm your host, Anita Ward, cultural anthropologist and chief development officer at Salary Finance. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our show, Working on Wellbeing. Today, we're live from Dallas, Texas, and you are in for a treat because my friend, Alice Rodriguez from J.P. Morgan Chase is joining us. And I, I was thinking back this morning, Alice, that I was preparing for this podcast and I was remembering the first time that I met you. Hard to believe. It was 1989 and we were both about five years old, but working at the bank, there were no child labor laws at the time. But I think back all of those years and, you know, in the last 30 years, a bank has been through mergers and acquisitions and You've played a lot of different leadership roles from, I don't know, the consumer bank, I guess, where we first met, and then wealth management. I'm going to miss something, but community, business development. And then where we've reconnected most recently is in your role as managing director and uh, at the time, I think, head of what the bank called community impact. And so we were able to come back together in terms of what we're trying to do in terms of underserved communities and financial uplift in the last few years. And I do remember you saying two years ago in a cab in New York that you were ready to retire. You're like, you know, I think I'm going to retire. But then I see this big news and big splash about J.P. Morgan Chase's $30 billion initiative to close the wealth gap. And whose name do I see attached to it? So you must have you know, much more to offer. And I can't wait to hear about it. But you know, that's what happens when you're kind of driven by purpose. So I couldn't be more excited to have you on. I can't thank you enough for joining us today and really sharing your story, the bank's story, what we're trying to do in terms of purpose. So thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, Anita. And so many wonderful memories when we both started our careers at Texas Commerce Bank. It's, it's shocking to even say, but at the end of this year, I will have been with the bank for 35 years. And uh, honestly, they've just been wonderful. I've had an opportunity to work in several lines of business, like you already mentioned. And yes, I was literally three weeks away from my retirement. I was at peace, as you recall from that cab drive. I was at peace. A big hug. It was like, great for you. Yeah, I was... Um, very happy with it um, because I just felt like I had so much I wanted to give to the community when at the time my boss, Tassanda Duckett, said, not so fast. <laughs> One more thing for you to consider and I'd love for you to delay your retirement and this is why. And she told me all about the firm's commitment around the $30 billion to advance racial equity and uh, she gave me 24 hours, I think, to give it. Some- oh, my God. It's typical T fashion. Make a decision now. <laughs> exactly. Uh, 
But I guess the more and more that it sunk into me, the more I realized that I could not pass up this opportunity because as I think about, you know, my life, my personal life, my career at JP Morgan Chase, just all the wonderful things that honestly I had like put in front of me that if you had asked me like back in 1989, like would I be where I am today? You know, the answer would be no. You know, people always say, or at least my kids have always asked me in the past, like, mom, did you always know you wanted to be a banker? And I'm like, no, I mean, this is all a little bit of luck, you know, honestly, being at the right time, you know, being in the right place at the right time. And then obviously hard work, you know, you can't, you know, get away with that. But I just said to myself, you have to stay because there's just so much that needs to be done as it relates to racial equity and all of the lessons and pitfalls that you've personally learned, like this is your opportunity to get it integrated to how the bank does business. Yeah, I think back because while it seems that it's a new topic and sadly it took a pandemic and lots of, you know, social justice issues to highlight the inequities last year, we have been pushing that boulder of financial uh, well-being up that hill like Sisyphus for years. And it keeps kind of rolling back down. And so I can't tell you how happy I am to hear it takes an organization like Chase with the means, the fortitude, the infrastructure, the purpose, and the passion to, to lift that boulder. So I'm excited that I think we'll have sustainable change. And, you know, I'm biting my lips because I want to jump into the initiative. But if you don't mind, I think I want to take the conversation a different direction. And I know your personal story and you know mine. And I think I want to begin at the beginning because I think our stories, we just shared, you know, what it was like to be mothers 25 years ago and how different it was and how you balanced out vacation time and maternal leave. And I think that our stories inform us and shape us and maybe drive us toward this change, particularly around financial inclusion. So would you share your story and start there? Yeah, happy to, happy to. So I was born to, to parents, one, an immigrant from Mexico who came to this country when she was about 13 years old. And neither my mother or my father had more than a seventh grade education at best. Uh, very hard workers, both of them. Uh, I would say uh, my mother, I give her you know 100% credit because she was the one who really raised us and she raised us in you know, this is probably generalizing here, but like she grew up in a very typical like faith, you know, she was raised Catholic, you know, there was, you know, nuns in her family. So she was very strict with us. And it was important for her to make sure that we had a church life. And then, you know, obviously hard work. You know, my father was a shrimper. My mother, you know, did whatever job she could do to put food on the table. And, it, you know, that was er everything from, you know, when she could, you know, do, you know, migrant work with her family, she did that. You know, she needed to clean houses. She did that. You know, she was a wonderful cook. So she made tamales during Christmas and she sold those, you know, during the, the holidays. And so my upbringing was one of lots of extended family because my mom came from a family of 12. And then just this view of hard work. And my mother used to say this all the time, like kind of like life is not fair, get over it and do what you have to do in order to, you know, succeed in life. And to watch this woman, you know, drive 
from Brownsville, Texas, which is at the southernmost tip of Texas, all the way to Illinois and drop me off with one aunt, drop my sister off with another aunt, and then, you know, either take my brothers with her or drop them off wherever she dropped them off and go work with her nieces and nephews and stuff was amazing uh, to me. And I know I've shared this story with you, Anita, but it truly has been, you know, always very impactful to me. But when my mom did this, you know, I stayed with an aunt in Chicago. And one day my aunt with her, you know, four children take me to the Sears Tower. And it's not called that anymore, of course. But at the time, you know, this was like 19, probably 73. You know, the Sears Tower was the tallest building, I think, in the world. It was. And so it was a big deal and recognize that I was raised in a town where probably at the time there was only like between 80 and 100,000 people there. The tallest building in our city was like four stories, I think. Maybe the bank. Yeah, <laughs> it was a bank. You know, like how terrifying it was to get in this elevator that was going to go like all these floors. But I remember like the most impactful thing for me, just even being in the city of Chicago at the time was how many people were coming into the Sears Tower, you know, with you know, suits and, you know, nice dresses and briefcases. And it kind of like was the first time it kind of hit me that nobody in our family had jobs like that. Many of my uncles and cousins worked in the meat packing plants in Chicago and some sort of, you know, either migrant work or I always say, like, I was so lucky to be born in the sort of the second half of the cousins because I have 51 first cousins, Anita. And when I listen to my older cousins that are about 15 years older than me, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, when Theo Jose used to come around with the truck and say, hey, do you want to spend time with your cousins this summer? And they would say, that's a great idea. And as my cousin Benny, uh, who's one of the older cousins, says, next thing I know it, Alice, I'm in this like field. <laughs> all these people, and I'm not thinking about that. So thank God that, you know, that wasn't something that I had to experience. But my point in the story here was I realized that there were other people that had other lives. And I always wondered, like, how do you get a job like that? Like, how do you get a job where you can work inside an office, you know, and wear a nice dress and carry a briefcase and stuff? So it was sort of like that inspiration that stuck with me, you know, as a nine-year-old kid. My story is slightly different from yours, but there's so many parallels, Alice. You know, my parents came from Italy. My grandpa didn't speak English. My mom grew up in a family of 13. So similar. So we have this probably the same number of first cousins along the way, you and I, but my mom and dad never figured out exactly where to get that financial footing. So thank God we had a huge extended family because we literally couch surfed. So shared bedrooms with cousins, stayed with cousins, the, the broader network, you know, family network helped us make it. But I never learned things like the language of money. My inspirational moment came when I worked at McDonald's and the manager asked me, did I have a bank account? Because I was 15 and I had no idea, you know, where do you cash a check? For me, my mama cashed her check at Binion's at the big wheel, right? So I didn't know financial institutions, but I started thinking about a moment that I don't often share. I shared with you the other day that I was terrified when I joined the bank because I didn't speak the language of money. So I had no idea how I was going to navigate 
I was a senior vice president. How was I going to navigate just those Friday meetings when the chairman put up all the financials and talked about what was happening in the capital markets? And I thought, oh, for God's sake, I'm a cultural anthropologist. I know people in technology. I have no idea what they're talking about. And I don't know about your family, but the market to me meant Kroger, right? I mean, I'm sitting in a meeting and Mark's talking about what's happening in the market. And I'm like, oh my gosh, and equity and stock. I mean, are we stocking the shelves at Kroger? Where are we going? And so I have to admit that I came in even to the bank at that level in my career, knowing nothing about investments and wealth. And so think about how many other Anitas are out there just trying to figure out how do I speak this language? How do I navigate it? I don't know. Did you guys talk about finances at home? No, it's back to your point about a lot of similarities, right? In the sense that I was the first one to graduate in my family from college. So remember, parents didn't go to high school. Like they had at best, you know, seventh grade education. No, we never talked about money. And for them, it was all about like just putting food on the table because, you know, with their jobs, they were so seasonal in nature. Like they had good credit at the local little grocery store because you know, my dad was a shrimper. He wouldn't come back in, you know, another three months. And so we, she, my mother would just have to figure out how to make a dollar like really, really stretch. And even their house, Anita, like they bought it from a relative and the relative owner finance. Like they'd never been to a bank to get a mortgage or to buy a car or to do all of those things. So yes, it was very, very foreign for me as well. And and it was, you don't want to ask a lot of questions because you don't want it seem like you don't know. And you're looking around and saying, oh my God, I must be like really dumb. And the reality is that it's not about that, right? It's just about the exposure and the knowledge. And there's probably many, many, many more people like you and I that are sitting in, you know, in corporate settings or in other places that they just need the guidance, the knowledge, and not put in this very complicated way. Because let's be honest, as bankers, we tend to like want to talk about things in these like really like interesting concepts as opposed to, no, it's not exactly as complicated as that. Right. You know, uh, mortgage-backed securities. Okay, let's talk about what that means. And the first time I heard that, I thought, oh my gosh, now I think, oh my God. But I actually don't know, Alice, how you did end up in banking. And you just said, you know, your kids asked you, uh, for me, it was purely accidental. But how did you make your way into the bank? Yeah. So I graduated from college in 1986. And as you know, Anita, it wasn't the best time in Texas to be looking for a job. So we had the oil bust, the real estate bust, all going on at the same time. And so I actually got a job with a SNL out of Houston that had hired this management company to manage some of the foreclosed properties. And so I was like on this property really doing um, light bookkeeping. And this happened, this went on for about you know six months. And I thought, okay, you've got to get a job with benefits now. (laughs) Like, you know, this is all good, but it was more of a temp, you know, kind of job. And so uh, this is the part that always cracks my kids up. And so I said, I was looking in the paper. (laughs) I can relate circling. (laughs) They're like, why didn't you go on the internet, mom? I go, because it did not exist. That's why. 
But anyway, I saw a job for a loan teller at Texas Commerce Bank. And I thought, what's a loan teller? Like, I've never heard of that, right? So I went to the bank and, you know, I applied uh, for the job. And it turns out that a loan teller at that time was just really someone who took the commercial loan payments. They just had it separated from the regular proceeding tellers. And um, I didn't know this at the time, but they were actually looking for someone who could assist the loan manager. She was looking for a succession plan. And so they thought, okay, let's, let's hire somebody to be kind of her right hand, but let's use this position right now to see, you know, who we can get, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll never forget, you know, they actually had me interview with the chairman of the bank at the time, Bobby Duffy. And I didn't really understand that because I thought to myself, this is kind of weird. Why am I interviewing for Mattella? <laughs> right. And he asked me this really interesting question. He goes, I want you to know that we have looked at your references and we've called them to verify them. And we see here that you worked for JC Penny for five years. And I did from the time I was 16 until I graduated from college. And they said that if you don't take this job with us to send you right back to them because they want you to come into their retail training program. Like after working there five years, why didn't you just go to their program, right? And I was so afraid, Anita, because the reason I didn't stay with Pennies, because they did offer me that opportunity, obviously, was because at that time, you know, like those trainees worked all of the terrible hours that the retail stores have, right? So like the 12 to 9 schedule, like every day and weekends. And I thought, I don't want to work at the weekends. And besides that, the bank is closed on the weekend. (laughs) See how that worked out for you. (laughs) This is God's way of saying, ha, ha, ha. Oh, you, know? yeah. you thought you had a plan. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But that's how I ended up at the bank. That's great. Well, well, tell me about this new initiative because, you know, I've been dying to hear more. But for me, uh, you know, I'm a data nerd, so you know how I get crazed about the data. And when I hear things like over the next five years, close the wealth gap. First, I you know get super excited about it, but just for our audience, because they might not be as close, can I share just a couple of data points that I think are important to frame why I think you're doing this and why I think it needs to be done? But in my world, if you think about homeownership as one of those components of health, of wealth. So like your family, my mom and her 13 siblings grew up in 800 square feet, and that home was then sold to one of, you know, one of the children. So we we don't really think about home ownership, but if you look at home ownership among white families in the US, it's 70%. So there's some generational wealth build up there. But if you look at uh Hispanic families, it's only 45%. And if you look at African American families, it's only 44%. So I look at that box of wealth related to home ownership and say, oh my gosh, that's a huge divide. And then I look at stock because, you know, now that I'm smart about it, Alice, <laughs> I, you know what, as an aside, the first time the bank gave me options, I had no idea what the heck they were. Uh, and everybody was like, wow, you got options. And I'm like, okay, what do I do with these things? What are they? Can I sell them? Um, <laughs> so when I, when I look at stock, white families, 57%. Hispanic families, 37%, and African-American families, 30%. So again, giant gap in between just stock. And that includes all the 401ks too, which means that Hispanic and African-American families, the the Latinx community and the African-American community, they're not even participating in a 401k. So they're passing on some of that free money. And then the part that breaks my heart the most is I look at the percentage of families with zero dollars net worth. Might even tear up a minute. But 
when you look at zero dollars and you look at white families, there's only 15% that are at zero net worth. And we know about poverty and how we need to address it. But when you look at Latinx communities, that's 30%, Alice, at zero net worth and African-American 40%. So when we talk about the challenge that you're facing, we at Salary Finance were headquartered in Boston for the U.S. And there's a very famous Federal Reserve Bank report that looked at Boston. And for white families in Boston, the average net worth was $250,000. The average net worth of an African-American family in Boston is $8. So when I kind of pull all this together, back to my Sisyphus, right? You guys are pushing a giant boulder with huge divides. So I'm thinking, how are you going to do this? <laughs> we understand the challenge, but what is the initiative? And I, I may have missed some of the you know, indicators of wealth along the way, but certainly it has to do with affordable housing and it has to do with community uplift. So Maybe what are you doing? I'll ask you like a pepper of you with a thousand questions. What are you doing? How's it structured? Why is that not CRA? I mean, what is this that you're doing that's so different and so exciting? So you nailed it. I mean, you nailed it, Anita, in terms of what all the key drivers are, right, of that wealth divide in this country. And as you know, uh, we have been working on financial health and trying to really assess whether or not we had all of the right products and services for our clients so that, you know, we could be the bank for all, that, you know, we were going to be true to that uh, commitment. So we've been working on this, honestly, for several years, probably at least three years. And then, you know, last summer with all of the, you know, challenges that were happening in our country, and more importantly, like you said, uh, more of the spotlight on the racial, you know, uh, justice challenges that we were having, it was the right time to really say, you know, we're going to be bold, we're going to put a stake in the ground, and we are going to manage this just like we manage everything at JP Morgan. And more importantly, we're going to integrate this into the lines of business. So the, the racial equity commitment is there the $30 billion to really put a spotlight on all of those initiatives that we believe are going to drive, uh, you know, us narrowing that gap. To your point about five years, look, that's a stake in the ground. And I don't believe that you're going to obviously completely close a gap in five years. But the idea here is to make all the necessary changes so that you're making progress to establish sustainability for the future. So we've taken a look at what are all of the fundamental things we would have to work on in order to, to address this issue. And our four pillars that we're really focused on are affordable housing, as you just mentioned, financial health, minority small businesses, and our workforce diversity, because we think that all of that together is what's critical to, to drive uh, the change that we need to drive. When we say the $30 billion, it is mostly about lending, incremental lending to Black and Latinx families, okay? And listen, some people ask us, like, what? Why did you call out these two segments, you know, et cetera, et cetera? And it's for all the reasons you already said, Anita. Like that, if you look at 2019 FDIC data, the median net worth for a uh, white household, 180000 for a Latino household, 36000 For a Black household, 24. That's median net worth. All the things you already said, right? So we said, 
Therefore, we want to put a stake in the ground and say, we want to lend more to these two segments because of that big you know, chasm that's there. And we want to do it in affordable housing, both on the supply side, as well as the demand side. So in other words, we know that um, having affordable rental units is a means to an end. We want to get people to the home ownership, but before they can even get to home ownership, we got to make sure that they can have affordable rent. So we have $14 billion tied to preserving or adding to the affordable rental units in this country. Then on the on the demand side, we've got a $12 billion commitment on incremental lending on the home lending side. So $8 billion of that is for purchase and $4 billion of that is for refi. I'm, I'm sorry, Alice. Let me. So, what I find so fascinating about that is, and I'm assuming that there are equity investments as well on the commercial side to help build affordable housing, right? So, even with the housing piece, what you're doing different is you're creating an infrastructure and a platform that's sustainable. So, some people may not qualify no matter what you do for the mortgage piece right now, but you can put them into affordable housing where they can gain those skills, figure uh, the financial you know, literacy skills and coaching and do whatever you need to do to help them then ultimately become eligible for a mortgage. So all of it, at least on the housing side, from the supply side and the demand side, fits together into a sustainable model. And as I hear you articulate it, I can't help but think that's a bit of the secret sauce because we're we're either addressing the supply side or the demand side, but this is the first time I see somebody intentionally putting together. So kudos for that. It, I'm assuming that was a part of the plan. <laughs> either that or got the Alice magic on top of it. <laughs> no, uh, well said, Anita. Like it was super intentional. And again, everything that we thought about when we were working on the on the commitment, it was in a lot of research and the spirit always being like the litmus test, right? Is this sustainable or not? Because if it's not sustainable, we don't want to do it, right? And this is where this is like business led. And to me, Anita, that's the biggest, you know, difference here is that this is not, you know, philanthropic. This is not, I mean, we have a philanthropic piece to it, but not like we're asking our colleagues in corporate responsibility, you know, here's a bag of money and go do some stuff. Like, no, we want to be partners with the community. We want to be partners with other corporates. We want to be partners in really getting to the root causes here. Because if you never get to the root cause, forget it. Right? You're just not going to get that sustainability. So, yes, that was super intentional. And, yes, we've got the investment bank involved. We have the commercial bank involved. We have pretty much all of our lines of businesses really leaning in here. I love that. Did I hear you say small business then too? Because that's part of that ecosystem, right? Exactly. So the commitment there is $2 billion. And for many of these commitments where I'm giving you the dollar number, we also have units tied to it. So it's not just the dollars, but it's also the units. And then we have a $750 million uh, spending uh, commitment. So from a supplier diversity perspective, right? Let's let's look at your supply chain. Exactly. So that kind of falls under our uh, small business remit. And then, you know, we've got a uh, commitment that we made to invest in MDIs. Because back to your point about like, look, we know we're not going to be able to accomplish everything on our own, but we have some wonderful minority depository uh, institutions as well as, you know, CDFIs out there that we've been working with for a long time that do phenomenal work. 
in these communities. So let's invest in them as well, right? So we have part of our commitment. And that gets you to the unbanked too. So you may not be able to support the unbanked, but through a CDFI, we may be able to, and through a nonprofit. Exactly. Which then brought us to like our financial health uh, pillar, which was, again, thinking through, we serve in a lot of communities today, but we recognize based on research that there's a trust challenge for us. And so in the communities, right, we think about the Black community, we think about the Hispanic community, and how can we really leverage partnerships with the nonprofits we've been doing business with for a long time in these communities to help us bridge that trust And this is where, you know, the idea of community centers uh, came into play and community managers. That's an entirely new job family for us. And this is someone who is literally in the community working with all of the different partners to talk about the racial equity commitment, but more importantly, to work together to help people improve their credit scores, to help people think about a budget, to help people with that knowledge, right? I mean, I think back to like when I was growing up, like if my mother knew that she could have gone to a place, right, where she was going to get all this education and feel comfortable, then, you know, maybe uh, some of the outcomes would have been a little bit different. But that is where I see that financial health pillar as so fundamental, right, to getting people prepared for the home ownership. For getting those entrepreneurs prepared for, you know, what they need to do to start their business or more importantly, how to continue uh, to grow it. So um, I think the other thing I just want to mention real quickly that I thought was really important for the bank is that my team was created to really, you know, do two things. One was to ensure that we were centrally managing the commitment, that all of the governance and reporting and transparency was happening in the center around, you know, every element of the commitment. And then the real important piece, I feel like, obviously, the governance is extremely important, but there is no, you know, national is not a place. That's what we like to say on my team. National is not a place, right? This commitment is delivered locally in the local communities. Let's really design a localization framework and strategy so that at a local level, horizontally across all lines of business, we're delivering in the community. And as you know, Anita, having grown up in a, you know, more of a community bank um, before it became Chase, that's the part that I love the most because it's getting back to the roots, right? Getting back to what it means to be part of the community. Yeah, I, I tease you often that you're, you know, my PhD in anthropology could be yours because you're really doing ethnographic work and what you're doing at a local level feeds up into this macro impact. But without the local level and without the trust at the community level, you can't pull this off. So I think about stepping back and looking at how do you engage all of those? You've got community leaders, activists, social leaders, branch managers. I don't know. We we still call them branch managers, but nonprofit organizations and schools and churches in some cases and grocery stores in some cases. I mean, depending upon what community you're in, there's different pain points and different languages and different aspirations. And so, as you're wrapping your heads around what does that look like? For me, it just all comes back to trust. So there was a time, Alice, you're going to crack up. And I think I can say it now because 30 years have passed. But there was a point where we had at in Texas Commerce Bank member banks. And we were, 
my job was to go to all the member banks, figure out what goes on in their communities, what's happening internally, what products are they doing? Does it make sense? But then with the ulterior motive that we were going to consolidate operations into Arlington because each bank at that point had their own operations. And there was one bank that I went to and I don't think it was yours. I hope not. But (laughs) they had operations in sort of an office behind the teller platform. And they had these blinds that, you know, could be closed. And when we decided to that we were going to consolidate that particular bank, we're just going to have to close the blinds because our community, we're going to have to lie to them and pretend like Susie and Anita and Alice are still back there processing checks because they will never trust a New York bank. And at the time, I thought, oh, that's so ridiculous. But then I put on my anthropology hat, and I think maybe it's kind of the same thing. And I saw an article, I think, at the LA Times about what you're doing with those you know, community branches and opening them up and having almost like a com- community center inside. And it reminds me of, you know, my favorite bank in Texas Commerce Bank in Brownsville. And going there, and I think it was Fridays, there was like laminated cookies and parties and balloons and people got dressed up and they came to the bank and meeting with the banker. And it was a social event as much as it was a financial transaction. And for me, that's all about the trust, right? That's the anthropology. That's what you're doing. But that just seems so like we're on rewind in many ways. So what lessons are you taking from those days where you and I figured out how do you, you know, serve lemonade in Brownsville to how do you really make a difference in that community? And is it a bit the same? Yeah, I mean, it's such a wonderful memory, uh, Anita. And I think that as we are embarking on this, you know, localization approach, it is all about that. It's about being culturally relevant. We recognize that we have a lot of great digital products and many of our customers love the digital uh, aspects of how they can bank today. And we would, it's an addition to, but we still have, you know, people that come into our branches and need our help and really want that knowledge. And in order to build that trust, we have to be culturally relevant. That means that when people walk into the branch, they should feel like we are part of the community. And not feel like at all intimidated about, you know, how they're coming into the branch. And so therefore the artwork, it's like sometimes the little things, right? If you are in East LA, that we have Spanish language merchandising, that people come in and it's bienvenidos instead of just like welcome in there. And it really is not rocket science. In my opinion, it is like back to basics. And I'll tell you, you know, we had... A phenomenal event in Houston uh, last week uh, where our local, you know, market leadership team, the local management team, you know, all of our resources, right? All of the J.P. Morgan Chase assets on the ground in Houston said, you know, we want to do an event in the Fifth Ward at the Deluxe Theater because one of the things we recognize is that we've got to tell the community what we're doing. We want to have an economic summit that we can talk about the racial equity commitment, that we can talk about some of the things that we're working on. More importantly, so we can listen. Like, what is the community saying? It's it's great that we're out here all saying all this wonderful thing, but how is the community receiving this? And I have to tell you, you know, I was blown away because I wasn't sure, you know, obviously, given our current, you know, environment, 
Uh, we were very careful, by the way, following all our CDC guidelines, et cetera, et cetera. But we had about 100 people. We had three different panels that day. And in full um, disclosure here, we did have a very special guest on our third panel, uh, Master P, able to join us. And as you know, he's a graduate of the University of Houston. He has a lot of great just reach in our Houston market. But the whole point of it was when community gets together, community gets together. And it doesn't matter if it's Master P or if it's our local team or it's the local nonprofit. It was a wonderful opportunity to provide great feedback and knowledge on what we were doing and get the other piece of it, which is what the community thought was missing. And what I loved about the very end as people were leaving and stuff is they said, you know what, thank you for coming to us. Instead of having to go to downtown Houston or some location, like you came to our neighborhood and you came to speak to us there. And ultimately, that's the goal is to reach out deeper into the community, to have the conversations and not be afraid. Like, look, we're not perfect and we know we're not perfect and we know that we have opportunities, but we also have lots of partners that are here to help us to really close, uh, start narrowing this divide. And Alice, I know we talk about it just being the right thing to do, but as you said a little bit earlier, it makes good business sense. I mean, in so many ways, you're building the funnel, right? And and I can't help but reflect on the Latinx community because I know you're chairman of the U.S. Hispanic Chamber. And we're talking about Houston and, you know, we're talking about Brownsville and Texas. And so I'm thinking, what's that opportunity to look like with, uh, you know, with the Latinx media, with your roots? And I know that there's a huge opportunity, both for consumer side of the world, but also for uplift and, again, doing the right thing. So maybe you could share some of what that looks like from the Chamber's perspective as well. Yeah, no, definitely. Like the latest census came out, you know, I think it was about two weeks ago. And one of the things that was not a surprise to me, because uh, obviously I live this every day in my uh, chairwoman hat with the USHC, but also just, you know, thinking about business was that you know, the country grew 7% from the last census 10 years ago. And of that number, 51% of the growth came from Hispanic, people of Hispanic descent. And when you look at the demographics in this country, you know, it's just under 20%. It's 19% of the population here for the U.S. Average age is 30. Most common age is 11. And if you look at like the next, let's call it 30 years, right? That Like if you were a business that, you know, just created widgets and you needed someone to buy your widgets, right? This is an annuity for you for a long time, right? But you have to be speak to this, uh, this population. And, and one of the things that has been really uh, interesting to me is, you know, just how important Spanish language is, you know, culturally to the segment. Uh, the fact that Latinas are starting businesses six times that, uh, non-Latinas, and just that real need to ensure that we're also recognizing that this is a very big population that also has challenges as it relates to racial equity. And, you know, we've talked about that, you know, you, you outlined it so perfectly at the beginning, Anita. And so it's both the opportunity, but it's also, right, not just the opportunity for the growth, but the opportunity to educate and ensure 
you know, when, when you look at the next, I think it was the next 10 years, like uh, people buying houses in this country, seven out of 10, let that sink in, seven out of 10 will be of Hispanic descent. And so you're in the mortgage business, right? If you're in the banking business, right? Paying attention to this community is extremely critical. And, you know, uh, one of our competitors uh, has a really good focus on financial health as well. And they recently did a survey. This was out of Bank of America. And they recently did a survey uh, to Hispanic millennials. And what's interesting in terms of the survey was that 73% of Hispanic millennials said that they were you know, having to help their family, not just like their immediate family, but their extended family as a result of everything that was going on with the pandemic, that was significantly higher than non-Hispanics, which were at like 53%. And, you know, just like the number of them, as the survey went on, you know, asking them like how many of them, back to your earlier points, had um, money saved, either in savings, at least $1,000 in savings or investment, it was only like 43%. Again, lower than what you saw for non-Hispanics. So there's a great need everywhere. I would say that this is really important to pay attention to just because of the sheer size of growth that this community is going to have here over the next, you know, 20 years. Yeah, I hear you saying that we really can't make progress unless we address this population. But at the same time, it's such an opportunity. It's almost a no-brainer. Like, why wouldn't you figure this out? Why why wouldn't you make your products culturally relevant? And why wouldn't you take advantage of a huge population to fill that funnel? So I hope that, you know, I, I know Chase will lead that effort and we'll just ignore the competitor along the way, Alice. <laughs> the, the one thing and I'd really struggle with is there's an I, inclusion starts with an I. So I feel accountable in so many ways for inclusion, but how are you driving accountability with the initiative? I know you talked about embedding it in the lines of business, but you know, how are you measuring success? How are you measuring accountability? And through your centralized governance, you're probably tracking that, but what does that really mean in terms of inclusion and, you know, and I and I owning it? Yeah, no, we have a lot of rigor around it, uh, Anita. So Every month, we're looking at the results. We actually have business reviews with every uh, single one of the lines of business. We have weekly meetings with all of our racial equity leads in the businesses. We obviously are reporting to senior management on a very frequent basis to our board of directors, you know, very frequently. And and we're really holding, you know, the, the leaders in the business accountable for ensuring that they're making progress around this. And um, I have been very pleased that all of my colleagues are really leaning in. You know, I'll get phone calls from, you know, some people that are within the business that say, I want to do more. You know, maybe I'm in the data and analytics team, but is there anything else you need me to do to help you push this agenda um, forward? And so I think that I feel very good about the accountability that we're putting it in place. And the real key here is that, you know, we manage this initiative with the same rigor, right, that we do everything in our businesses. The minute you try to pull it apart somewhere, it just is not going to have the same kinds of emphasis. And I think that's the piece that I feel like we've built into our process that's working most effectively. 
Um, Alice, somebody a few years ago sent me a, a book called The Second Mountain. It's David Brooks. And he talks a lot about how that first mountain that you're overcoming is about you and maybe building your ego and your confidence. And then you go to that second mountain and it's kind of like shedding those. It's not about ego. It's about purpose and it's about people. Not to say that you didn't do that in your first mountain, but in your second mountain, it's a little more selfless in many ways. And I know you've had, maybe you've had three or four of those mountains now, but is this your second mountain and does this drive your purpose? And is it something that you look at as, gosh, you know, I'm walking arm in arm with the community. This is the opportunity to kind of bring forward all of those pieces from the first mountain into my second. Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, a very interesting way to think about it. And I would say absolutely. I, you know, have had a great career. I've had wonderful mentors. I've worked for some, you know, just terrific bosses who taught me a lot. But I recognize, right, that as I think about my family, and I think about, you know, just the fact that my grandmother didn't read or write. And my mother went to the seventh grade, as I already said, I was the first one to graduate from college. And my youngest doctor, my youngest daughter is a doctor now. And you say, like, how did you break that cycle? Right? And you can break it. It doesn't, you know, really take a lot when you really think about it, right? But when you do it, it could have this like multiplier effect, right? So the way that my children now will go out into the world. And so I definitely think that like my purpose right now is to really be courageous and bold about the things that don't make sense. Like I have no one to impress. For me, it's super personal. It's super personal because as inspirational as my mother was to me and the hero that she was, I know also know she suffered a lot and it was hard. And, you know, I'll never forget Anita, like, and I'm so glad I did it uh, before she died. But, you know, my mother did go back and she got her GED when she was like in her like 50. And one day it just kind of hit me, right? Like, I wonder when she did that. I mean, we heard, we were grown. Like I was already like, I think getting out of high school at the time. And so now, you know, I'm maybe in my late twenties or something. And I asked her, you know, well, I'm like, why did you do that? She said, because I always had, I always wanted to work with children and there was an opening at the Head Start. And so she went to apply and they told her she had to have a GED or a high school diploma. And she said, well, I raised four children. And she thought that was good enough. And they said, no, I'm sorry. Our requirement is that you have to have a GED or a high school diploma. And she said, and I was just so tired of doing manual jobs. And think about it, Anita, like she still had to support herself because uh, my father was older than her and he had already passed away. And so she said, now her children are leaving. I mean, it made total sense, right? When she's telling me that, but she, she was thinking about that and she struggled, but man, that woman did it because she was, she was a fighter. And I saw that suffering. And so I know that, you know, I stand on the shoulders of people who made lots of sacrifices for me. So I need to give back. Like that's super important to me. And so whether it's in this capacity or something else in the future, for me, it is about you know, sharing my knowledge that I, that I believe. I always tell people at the bank, like, nothing is rocket science. Like, truly, unless you're really going to go be a rocket scientist somewhere. Or capital markets, they, they, they're kind of... Exactly. 
<laughs> I never understand what they're saying. But Alice, one time um, I was making a presentation to the TCB board and Herb Kelleher was on there. And I was so excited because do something with Herb. And I didn't care that President Ford was on. I just, Herb was sort of my icon. And I remember thinking, he's going to say something, right? He's going to ask me a question. And when I was finished talking about all these wonderful things we were doing in communities and that what we were doing with the banks, I remember him sort of leaning back and said, you know, Anita, people have to be your purpose. And you really can't do anything for your customers without a focus on your own employees. And that guidance 30 years ago really set me in motion. And I have to tell yourself, I ask myself all the time, what does purpose look like? And I, I'm looking at it. I mean, purpose in practice looks like you. And I'm like, I'm so grateful to be a part of this. And I'm so grateful to have you on our podcast today. And I know that there's going to be a third mountain and a fourth mountain and a fifth mountain. And I just want to be with you on that journey. So I'm leaning in. Let me know how we can help too. But thank you so much for today. Thank you, Anita. I really appreciate the opportunity, but more importantly, I appreciate the friendship. And I am so about being on this journey with you and this purpose. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Working on Wellbeing, brought to you by Salary Finance. I'm Anita Ward. At Salary Finance, our mission is to improve the financial health of working Americans by providing access to socially responsible financial products in the workplace. You can learn more about how you can partner with us to help improve your employees' financial well-being at salaryfinance.com. Don't forget to subscribe or follow so you don't miss an episode.